0: I'm Chris Reback, and this is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Working Capital Review. Looking for the best collection of ideas that drive global business? Go to WorkingCapitalReview.com, sign up with your email, and each day, get a smart new post delivered. We frequently hear the complaint, our education systems, particularly public education, are broken. Invest in these approaches? That's just throwing good money after bad. For example, investing in Head Start may make sense. In other cases, investing in K-12 through might be the right approach. But coordinate and sustain ongoing investment in both? Forget it. Only, it turns out, that's not what the data show. And that's not the conclusion of Kirabo Jackson, a Northwestern University professor who's analyzed the data, trends, and outcomes. In fact, as Jackson explains... It's specifically the continued, ongoing investment in kids and their education that delivers exponential results. As you'll hear, investing in Head Start plus investing in K-12, through well, that math is simple. One plus one equals three. A word about Professor Jackson. He's the Professor of Human Development and Social Policy and Faculty Fellow in the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern School of Education and Social Policy. An economist by training, his research has been published in articles in leading journals such as the Quarterly Journal of Economics, American Economic Journal, Journal of Labor Economics, the Review of Economics and Statistics, among others. But he's turned his economic worldview to the world of education, and in 2016, Education Week listed him among the top university-based scholars who are doing the most to influence educational policy and practice. Professor Jackson is one to watch, and listen to. So, here's my conversation with Professor Kirabo Jackson. Kirabo, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, uh, of all the public policy areas to choose to de- to dedicate your career to, you didn't want something with slightly less controversy than education? I, I mean, w- what about infrastructure? Y- you- no one argues about infrastructure. You, you didn't want infrastructure?
1: This this is true, and and infrastructure is certainly important. But my sense is education is really at the heart of uh, of understanding sort of society. You know, it's it's when you have a better educated society, I think is a more functional society. It's a more productive society, and it's also a more equal society. So for a variety of reasons, education seemed to be what was uh, most uh, if you want to sort of pull a lever to improve society. I think education is a good one.
0: Okay. I mean, yes, yes, you can improve society, but you you are you have stepped into it. So, you know, welcome welcome <laughs> into the into the quicksand. But but to, you know, on, on the more serious front, obviously, and, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um the point that you're making is exactly what it seems um you know, so much of your work and so much of your study and in particular the the study that I want to ask you about today um is what it gets to, is, you know, the role for education um, on a path to a, uh, you know, to greater equality and greater opportunity. So, um, so, so let's, let's get into it. Um, one of the key areas that you study, um, public school funding, um, particularly its effects on student outcomes through adulthood. Um, public, let's start broad. Public schooling does not seem to be, at least to me, in vogue these days. It feels like everywhere you look, the talk is vouchers and charter schools and privatized education. Why does public schooling still matter?
1: Well, I think the part of the conversation, the tenor of the conversation that we have now, in part is driven by a frustration, some of it which is, I think is, is reasonable, uh, frustration regarding the extent to which we are spending a good amount of money in public schools. um, And it does not appear as though it is necessarily being spent in the most effective way. Um, And for sure, there are many cases uh, and examples one can give um, in a large nation as such as the United States, where money is not spent productively, it's being wasted. Um, But I think oftentimes, uh, when you focus too much on a negative, we sort of lose sight of the positive. Hmm. Um, and it is entirely possible that money is not spent as effectively as it could be. Um, but it still improves outcomes if you increase spending. And that was kind of what I was interested to to examine. So uh, it, it absolutely matters. I mean, many, many, many children, most of, the, most of our nation's children are going to public schools. Um, and if it's the case that increasing resources that are available to public schools isn't going to improve their outcomes, that's an important thing to demonstrate. So it may, you know, the way I like to think about it is this, you know, even if it's the case that, you know, 40 cents on a dollar that goes into the public schooling system is wasted, which is certainly a bad thing, um, that 60 cents that goes into the public schooling system may have a positive impact. And the question is not whether we're getting uh, the best bang for your buck, but are we getting enough to justify the expense? Um, and my research basically is examining that question. And actually, the results my conclusion is probably the answer is yes. Um, and that is not to say we shouldn't focus on spending money as effectively as possible. Um, but I see those two things as being somewhat separate questions.
0: Okay. So, um, l- let's, let's walk through it. And yeah, the, 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 punchline is there. And, uh, we will encourage folks to, to stay with us, you know, and, and we'll explain how we get to the punchline. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly where it, it ends up. So the long run effect of Head Start and public school spending? And, and by the way, as a side note, I mean, lo- looking at the research that you've done and teacher labor markets and effects of teachers on socio-emotional skills and uh, the effects of single-sex ed- education, there I mean, there are so many conversations that you and I could have that I would love to have with you on, on education, but we'll we'll focus on this one. And, and, and the long-run effect of Head Start and public school spending. Um, what... And you may have just answered it, but what inspired you to do the research here in the first place? Was it a sense that something was off around the public conversation? Um, and then what was your hypothesis going in? What were you hoping to prove or disprove?
1: So looking looking at the, the sort of the head start piece, the early childhood education piece, okay. um, so Rucker Johnson, my co-author, and I, we we sort of, if you look at the literature that has been done on this, there has been... Uh, a, f- a few studies essentially documenting that early, ch- early childhood programs sometimes improve outcomes, and these outcomes are typically measured as, as sort of test scores, and that they, they often fade over time. And another mm. finding in the literature, and by fade over time, I mean that the children who participate, they look better than those who don't participate in the for a few years, but then by about third or fourth grade, it looks as though they look very similar to those who did not participate in Head Start. Um, and there's another... Uh, Set of papers that kind of document that uh, the impacts appear to be larger for children um, from more advantaged backgrounds. So typically, children of from white families tend to benefit more from Head Start than children from black families. So one of the things, one of the one of the thoughts that sort of came to mind is, well, it's it's possible that what's happening is <clears throat> many children are enrolling in Head Start, um, these early childhood interventions, and they're. Getting, they're gaining some skills, but if you're not sustaining those skills with a sort of nourishing environment, perhaps essentially the benefits are lost over time. So our thinking was that it's possible that one – exp- one possible explanation is that many children are – Enrolling in head start enrolling in in early childhood or pre k and they're not getting the additional enrichment to sustain the gains and they lost over time <clears throat> and this may be particularly uh true for individuals from less advantaged backgrounds such as uh, single african American mothers so that was where we sort of had the idea that perhaps the benefits of head start may differ among those that subsequently attend uh public k through twelve schools between the ages of five and 17 that are better funded and better able to sustain any of the initial gains that would have been um, produced by Head Start.
0: And so how do you, Design such a study how, how does it you know for for a layperson like me you, you know you think, well, wait a minute, how do you measure kids' progress over years there's so many different variables education in one town may or may not be similar to education in another location H- How do you design the study
1: that's that's a great question so one of the things that we do uh, is we we actually focused on the longer run outcomes of children, and we didn't focus uh, on test scores hmm. in part uh, one of the one of the benefits of that is we can sort of sidestep a lot of the questions about well, what if the test here is aligned to a different curriculum than others? That's one issue you have to sort of contend with. um but also ultimately, I think the goal of many of these early childhood interventions is not simply to improve test scores. But it's to improve a lot of the softer skills, uh, executive control, you know, executive functioning, self control, um, a lot of things that are actually very much invoked now in, in some of the more, more productive charter school systems, making sure kids um, have those softer skills um, is something that is emphasized by many of these early childhood. Um, programs uh, that are not necessarily well measured by test scores. So by looking at longer-run outcomes, like whether children actually graduate from high school, uh, whether they go to college, um, and actually even their subsequent earnings is a way to get a, a, a much more broad sense of whether children are doing better in the long run um, using a measure that is yeah, more, more broad. So that's when, That's how we sort of address that issue and side some of the issues that you that you raise about how do you measure Something in one town versus another town, um, but then the the other question I think that you're uh, sort of getting at is how do you maybe parse out the influences of, say, family background from the influences of Head Start? Is that sort of what you're getting at, also? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, a- any of the influences. I mean, that's that's the first one that comes to mind. I'm sure you know you could probably tick off ten others, but but yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. So the 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 way that we do that is to uh, try to rely on comparisons that are among individuals that are very, very similar in all dimensions, other than the fact that some had access to Head Start and some did not. So one thing that we, we do not do in the study is we don't just compare individuals who enrolled in Head Start to those who didn't. We don't just compare children who participated in Head Start and who didn't. We, we take a step back and say, well, we can actually examine the outcomes of children um, who were who had access to Head Start because Head Start was available in their town when they were four years old Mm -hmm. uh, compared to children who did not have Head Start in their town. Um, And we can even do that within the same family. So within the same family, we can ask the question, what happens if one child had access to Head Start because Head Start was available in their town, but their sibling, their older sibling who was maybe – six years old when Head Start was rolled out in their county, uh, did not have access. And that's one of the comparisons that we make in our paper, sort of com- making comparisons among individuals from the same locations, sometimes from the same families, um, but participated in some of which participated in Head Start, but some of whom, whom didn't. Um, and the reasons why there's differences in participation was actually because there was differences in access, which is beyond the parent's control. Essentially, if a parent lives in a neighborhood, especially low-income parent who lives in a neighborhood... Um, whether a head start is uh, has been introduced in their town or not has nothing to do with their individual characteristics, so that when we make comparisons like that, we're removing the influence of things like family background, which could potentially um, make such comparisons difficult um, in other settings.
0: What was the Coleman report?
1: The Coleman Report was a very important report that was commissioned by the Department of Ed in the 60s. It came out, I believe, it was 1966, and James Coleman, who is a sociologist, um, and his research team, they compiled, uh, I think it was the first time anyone had actually linked uh, individual measures of student achievements, which is uh, standardized tests, to uh, family characteristics, and to school input measures. And he, he, he and his team came up with a few broad conclusions that have been very influential for policy over time. Mm-hmm. So the first of them was that uh, family background was extremely predictive of student achievement as measured by test scores. Um, and that's not really entirely, that's not really surprising, but that was one of the key findings. But the key finding that is often uh, somewhat more controversial is that they show that in, in their data, Once you account for family background, um, traditional measures of school quality, such as school spending or even class size, are unrelated to student achievement. So many have looked at that and came to the conclusion that, well, it's all about the families. Schools don't really matter that much. Um, That's actually not the appropriate takeaway, I should say, even from from their analysis. So even though it's true in the Coleman data that – going to a school that has uh, higher per pupil spending or going to a school that has larger sort of smaller classes does not change student achievement. Um, they did find that there were certain schools that had better achievement than others. It just wasn't associated with whether they were well-resourced or not. Mm. But, uh, even at the end of the day, I would argue that that study is is largely based on correlations, or it's in, well, it is based entirely on correlations. Right. Um, so that even even though it was very very influential, um, it does not actually speak to the direct. It doesn't answer the policy question of whether we can, uh, if we were to improve schools, does that change outcomes, or if we remove a kid. From a disadvantaged school to a better school, does that improve outcomes? And that's, that's the, the basically the kinds of questions that I'm trying to answer in this research.
0: And that's why I asked you about it, because when, when I was – you know, and I've had the, the, the privilege, the benefit of hearing you speak on this previously. And then when I researched more and read more, it was just extraordinary to me the role and impact that the Coleman Report played – and for how long that that has been taken and as you just said influenced public policy, um, and yet the conclusions that get drawn from it are seem to be exactly what you describe. And now you took a different approach and came out with a uh, different result and different potentially different public policy prescriptions that can come out of your work. So so that that really kind of blew me away and is is one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you about the the Coleman report.
1: So another thing I'll just sort of just mention is that, you know, the Coleman report was written um, in 1966. And, you know, the the there was not a strong sense at that time amongst researchers and policymakers um, that correlations and causation were not necessarily the same thing. Now, of course, people were aware that correlation does not imply causation. But um, I think that, that that hadn't been sort of hammered away um in the 60s, as the way that it is today, Today, um, almost no piece of research that is trying to make a policy claim would be based on just raw correlations. In, in essence, if you want to make a causal claim about what would happen if you – improve school quality, or if you reduce class size, today, the standard of evidence would be that you would have to actually manipulate school quality or manipulate school spending or manipulate class size and see what happens. Hmm. Um, That is to say, if you want to answer policy questions, you need to actually analyze actual policies. And that's essentially the way that we would uh, interpret research today. So most of the research today that analyzes actual policies or manipulations of these school inputs find that they're actually very, very um, effective at improving student outcomes, which is different from what you would get if you just look at raw correlations.
0: Yeah, I- I- important to note. Thank you. So, um, so let's look at uh, um, some of the the results um w- one of them that uh you know the, the variables and and the estimates indicate that for poor children increases in head start spending and increases in public K through 12 spending each individually increased educational attainment and earnings and reduced the likelihood of both poverty and incarceration in adulthood so explain that because that the first step i guess was to look at the effects of investing in head start and then, am I interpreting this properly, it, separately, investing in public K through 12? And you came up with conclusions on both of those, and then I guess we, we'll look at in a second what happens if one is or an area is investing consistently throughout those two areas. But, but that was the, the first set of findings, if I'm understanding correctly.
1: That is, that is correct, so what we what we do um, just to give you an overview of, of how that sort of how we did that yeah. was essentially what I just sort of described we we look at we compare the outcomes of children um, who were sort of born in the same same county, and uh, we rely on the fact that head start as a program started in 1965. So for individuals who were, say, born in 1964, um, when they were four years old, Head Start may have been available in their county of birth, but for others, it would not have been. And for those who were born, say, in 19, you know, 58, they would have been sort of six years old at the time, and they would not have been exposed. So what we do is we look at the, basically, outcomes of children um, who were exposed to different levels of Head Start spending um, when they they were four years old, Um, and we essentially document that being exposed to higher levels of Head Start spending in one's county when you're four years old, um, it was associated with improved educational attainment, wages, um, lower levels of poverty, and lower levels of incarceration as an adult. Um, When we, we do a separate sort of analysis looking at what happens to children when they're exposed to higher levels of public school K-12 through spending using a kind of a similar design. I won't go into too much detail, but basically Many states basically underwent school finance reforms where in the existing ways in which schools were funded had to be revamped or rewritten. It was deemed to be unconstitutional by state constitutions, and states had to rewrite the way in which schools were funded, um, funds were allocated to schools, to be more equitable. So districts that were previously low-spending districts or districts that were previously um, low-income districts were likely to get large infusions of cash after the passage of one of these court order reforms, and others were not. And what we do there is we say, well, we can look at children who are basically between the ages of five and 17, school-going age, when one of these reforms happened in their state. If you were in a district that was previously low spending, school spending levels went up a lot for you. Um, If you were one that was high spending, school spending levels didn't change very much. And we can basically compare the outcomes of children from the same school districts, mm. some of whom were in school when this money uh basically was infused into their public schools, and some of whom would have been too old to have benefited from that. And we document that those children who were between the ages of five and seventeen, when money was uh invested in the public schools, had much better outcomes than those who were say seventeen, eighteen or nineteen when this happened. Um and again we see improvements in years of educational attainment, uh wages, um Incarceration and, and incarceration and also being poor later on and then what wow. we do is we sort of combine these two things and we say well there are some areas where they had increases in k through12 spending but there were but there was no head start hmm. and there were places that had head start but there was no uh, school finance reform that changed uh, k through12 spending and then there were some places that had both and what we basically were able to do because we have this sort of these different kinds of districts or locations, we can ask the question, is it the case that getting more money uh, in the K-12 system for your public schools, does that lead to larger increases in outcomes when there's a Head Start present than when there's not? Hmm. Or there's some places that have Head Start and uh, and not. And we basically say, if you roll out Head Start, does the effect of rolling out Head Start have a bigger impact um, in areas that previously had a school finance reform and had higher levels of K-12 spending? And the answer there was basically, and this is, is that uh, the effect of both together yeah. is much larger than the sum of the individual effects. So you basically have a synergistic effect.
0: Yeah, really clarify that because that that's the key point, right? That's the payoff point. It, 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 I, I mean, you'll, you'll, you know, forgive me for butchering the math problem, but um, that was one plus one equals three. That's how I read it. <laughs> No, that's exactly right. Yeah, you you can tell. I, I got neither Head Start nor a well-funded public <laughs> education. So, but, <laughs> As far as I know. But but that, that's what I came away with. It, it, am I, is, was my interpretation correct?
1: No, that, is, that is exactly right. Um, if you basically increase spending on Head Start on its own, you get a, a modest effect. Um, if you increase uh, spending in the K-12 system, you get a modest effect. But if you do both at the same time, Uh, the effect is really, really large. So, you know, and to to use your analogy, if you spend one dollar on Head Start, you can get a certain impact. You spend one dollar in the K through twelve system, you're gonna get a certain impact. But the impact of a dollar on of Head Start and a dollar in the K through twelve system is bigger than two. That's exactly right. So I mean so the implications are basically that every dollar that we spend uh, in the K through 12 system is actually more effective at improving. Output. It becomes more efficient. You get more bang for your K through 12 dollars if you're also investing in Head Start, and vice versa. You get more dollars for your head, You get more of a bang for your Head Start dollars if you're also investing in the K through 12 system. So. The, the, the policy implication is that both of these things need to be done together, and we shouldn't think of them as being separate, and that the, the gains that we observe in the Head Start system may, are, would be much, much, much larger if we ensure that the kids who are exposed to Head Start are sort of followed up with subsequent, subsequent investments in their skills.
0: The, the efficiency argument is so powerful to me, because I, I feel like that... Doesn't that's a nuance? Shouldn't be a nuance, but but is an aspect that frequently gets missed. The questions are: How much is being spent, and what were the results? You know, usually based on test scores, as you identified, and that's not a you know necessarily a great outcome uh, or a great a great measurement. Um, measure. Yeah, a great measure. And and the the question of efficiency, um, you know, to me feels exceptionally important. So uh, so you come out with this study. Um, What was the reaction among public officials and politicians?
1: I think, as as in many things, there are some people who are sympathetic to the basic findings, and they found it very, uh, you know, very very important. They I think people certainly in the early childhood world find the results very compelling. It it does help explain a lot of the. the, the the patterns that we see where, you know, the fade out, like I described before, or the fact that the gains tend to be larger um, for the more advantaged poor population. So they, they, I think people generally found them to, that to be pretty, pretty compelling. Um, I, I think there are, as you probably are aware, there are some people who are sort of education spending skeptics in general, mm-hmm. Um I think, I think we were able to convince a few of them that maybe money does matter in some cases. Um, there's still work to do in that front. Um, but, but I think the, 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 one of the, one of the things that we've, we've tried to do in for, for this paper and other research on school spending is to really emphasize that it's important to decouple the questions of whether money matters from questions of whether it whether it matters as much as it could, um, and once you sort of separate those two questions, so certainly how we, how we spend money absolutely matters, um, and one of the things we're documenting here is that, yeah, how it, how it's spent matters. So if you distribute your money between early childhood and K through twelve you're getting a better outcome than if you spent all of it on only one of them. And that's kind of one of the, one of the results of this, uh, or I should say, you know, obviously you wouldn't spend all your money in K-12 or all your money in Head Start, but having a more balanced distribution towards Head Start and K-12 through gives you a better average outcome than if you overspent in Head Start and took money away from Head Start and spent on K-12 or vice versa. So our paper is both documenting that spending matters, but also at the same time documenting that how it's spent also matters for what the what, what the outcomes are going to be. So I think it's been relatively well received um, because it sort of speaks to I think issues that people from both uh, both sides of the political spectrum could could sort of get on board
0: with. Well, re- relatively well received is a modest understatement, obviously, but uh, because we know it's you know. But uh, anyhow, that's uh, that's a very <laughs> modest, very modest of you to put it. So in. In reading this and reading other aspects of your research, I feel almost like you could write a book um, and you can have this title this is you know free gratis for you um, everything you think you know about education funding is wrong now right, right? now you're an economist by training. Um, obviously you, you know, apply your study and your trade and your discipline towards public policy, particularly as we've discussed in the education front. Um, but, but, so this may be an unfair question to ask you, but why is this such a misunderstood education and investing and, and, you know, why everything you think you know about education funding is wrong? Why is this such a misunderstood area of public policy?
1: That is an excellent question. So, uh, so I'm actually in the process of, of writing a a meta-analysis right now. Actually going back and looking at some of the older research on school spending, the old writings on school spending, um, and looking at some of the new findings on school spending. And what, you know, so one of the things I should mention, I, th- I sort of alluded to this before. There's there's been kind of a shift. It's, it's referred to often as like the the credibility revolution in uh, in Economics in general, and it's sort of hit this question. So there are a lot of studies that have come out in the past five years on per, per people spending, uh, and those are very compelling, using very credible, um, you know, experimental or quasi experimental designs, and showing that like school spending does matter. Um, that includes some of the work I've talked about today and others by some other researchers. And there's a whole earlier literature that looked at this, and I went back to it and and sort of read through the findings, and one of the things that jumped out at me, which was kind of remarkable, um, was that, in fact, if you look at the old studies, they actually don't support the notion that spending doesn't matter. Hmm. Um, But it turns out that, for whatever reason, there were some very influential scholars who were basically interpreting the data in that way. Um, and I could, I could summarize how I came to that conclusion as follows. So if you have a whole bunch of studies out there, um, and you look at, say, we say we have 100 studies, uh, and you want to know, okay, does school spending matter? One, one, one way to look at it would be to say, well, if school spending matters, uh, then we should see that every single study on the topic should find that school spending has a positive impact. Now, clearly that's not exactly right. Um, Maybe, you know, because for random reasons, for statistical reasons, some studies may find a positive association, some may not. Um, Some may find zero. So then you might say, well, what is the threshold? So clearly it's not every study has to find the positive impact. Um, And what often had been done previously, particularly by uh, the person who had, was very prominent, was he basically looked and said, well, he wanted more than half roughly of the studies to find a positive impact. But it turns out that's actually not the right way to think about it. Hmm. Um, if you have a whole, if you have 100 studies um, and uh, 20 of them find positive impacts uh, and none of them find negative impacts, that's actually pretty compelling evidence of a positive impact on average. Um, the reason is that in order to even find a positive impact, it needs to pass a statistical test threshold, which is difficult to do. And most of the time, most studies don't pass that if there's no impact. So even 20% of studies finding positive impacts uh, suggest that it's a real impact. And so it turns out it's, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but even the older literature, if you look at it um, rigorously through a statistical lens, um, supports the notion that school spending matters. But for for whatever reason, I think, Scholars have looked at it, interpreted it without thinking about it sort of statistically, and said, well, if if half of the studies find positive but half find nothing, then there's nothing systematic. And I think that's basically just the wrong way to do it. And part of it is, you know, I think people who have a particular political viewpoint are sometimes likely to accept evidence um, that is consistent with their worldview and that's sort of what happened.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It, it feels. I. I think I understand what you're saying. But, but, and, and more broadly, it does feel like where you sit depends on where you stand in education and around interpretations of education spending and impact and public policy. And, and it does feel like an area where you know people try to take um, results and have them get interpreted to support their pre-existing – their pre-existing view or life view um, as opposed to going where the data lead. At least that's how it's feeling and and that's kind of what I'm I'm taking. I I would like to amend one thing I said previously. So when you do this meta-analysis – um, that's going to be huge. So I take back my free gratis offer for uh, the title <laughs> or the subtitle. I just want a small percentage. That's all. I mean, we can negotiate right. <laughs> details later. Um, but thats that sounds like everything you think you know about education funding um, is wrong, and that's uh, incredibly important. Kirabo, thank you. Thank you for your time, and, and thank you for the work you're doing. Well,
1: thank you so much for the kind words, and thanks for having me.
0: That was my conversation with Professor Kiarabo Jackson. Like I said, he's one to watch. My thanks to Professor Jackson for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.